Hello everyone, I'm your host Luke. And your co-host Jared. I'm back! Yeah, Gerard. Whoop, whoop. What up? Whoop, uh, whoop. Your check's in the mail. Um, Thank you. Doesn't exist. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. it's zero, zero, zero. Thank you. Thank you to our Patreons that I don't have. Um, <laughs> I'm not salty. I do this because I enjoy it. Um, so today we're talking about the mythical land, the lost continent of Australia. <laughs> Good old Australia. Yeah, because, um, you know, I, I was thinking about it. I forget. I think I was listening to another podcast, but I was like, what? I I don't know that much about Australia or, you know, like the history of it. So I was like, well, there's a there's a episode right there, baby. So baby. I'm going to be talking more about the um, human history of Australia. And then Jared's going to talk on, touch on some different aspects. So uh, the native inhabitants were obviously the Aborigine. So I didn't know this, but the Aborigine are actually one of two distinct groups of indigenous people to Australia. The other are known as the Torres Strait Islander people. It has long been conventionally held that Australia is the only continent where the entire indigenous population maintained a single kind of adaptation into modern times. Uh, some scholars now argue, however, there is evidence of the early practice of both agriculture and aquaculture by Aborigine people. Um, I... I also just want to say really quick that I'm not sure if the term, if there's a more up-to-date term than Aborigine. Do you, do you know of one? Uh, like I, a different term of, for Aborigines? Yeah. I don't know. I, so that's, I guess, just what I'm going to use for right now. Um, this finding raises questions regarding the traditional viewpoint that presents these two groups of people as perhaps unique in the degree of contrast between the complexity of their social organization and religious life and the relative, quote, simplicity of their material technologies. Um, did it give you an answer? Um, um, uh, are the various First, people, uh, First Nation peoples of Australia's mainland? Uh, hmm. Not really a different name. Uh, just uh, indigenous Australians, uh, Australian Aboriginal culture, Australian uh, diaspora. Diaspora. Uh, diaspora, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll just call them Aborigine, I guess. Um, so it's generally held that Australian Aborigine originally came from Asia via insular... Okay, uh, South. One second. The diaspora are actually Australians living outside of Australia. So completely different. Right. Um, are said to have come from uh, what is now Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, East Timor, Indonesia, and the Philippines. And have been in Australia for at least 45 to 50,000 years. Um, on the basis of research at the Nawalabilia, the first, and Majibebe 
archaeological sites in the Northern <laughs> Territory. Some scientists have claimed that early humans arrived considerably sooner, perhaps as early as 65 to 80,000 years ago, which yeah. is older than what they just said. Um, whatever. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but it, it is possible that... Uh, so what was before us, not Neanderthals, but like Homo erectus, mm -hmm. like they actually had a very long, you know, they found skeletons from uh, like, Europe. Like two million something years ago. Asia. I mean, it's possible they got to at least modern day China or something, you know. Yeah. Like not, not just went to, because, you know, it's the second... Or it was the first, they think, out out from Africa thing, right? Well, Neanderthals were also out of Africa as well around the same time period. But the Neanderthals aren't our uh, our direct ancestors; they're like more of a cousin lineage. Um, well, because we didn't we didn't, uh, we didn't develop from them. We have a bit of their genetics because right. our ancestors right. uh, commingled, so, per se. But like Homo erectus did have. They did make tools and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Like, we don't know if they had a language, per se, but they did make tools, at least, because they found them. Yeah. Like, I think they found, like, spear points or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, in either case, the first settlement would have occurred during a, an era of lowered sea levels, uh, where there were land bridges between Asia and Australia. You know, just, like, between, uh, you know, Asia to America. Yeah. Um... Which is technically now known as Russia. Yeah. Um, da, 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 da. There, um, so like one thing that they mention is the dingo, which is a type of wild dog, appeared in Australia only five to 3,000 years ago, which postdates the time that Aborigine began hafting small stone implements into composite tools some 8,000 years ago. Whereas the dingo was introduced from Southeast Asia, the small implements appear to be independent inventions from within Australia. Um, so within the past 1,500 to 3,000 years, other important changes occurred uh, from population increases, the exploitation of new habitats, more efficient resource exploitation, and an increase of valued items over wide areas. Um, so there's evidence for uh, complex social behaviors, including cremation before 40,000 years ago. I, I did not know that. That is that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Because, like, usually it was just like they buried their dead. Yeah. You know, not like cremating them. Yeah. yeah. That's um, really unique. Personal ornamentation, such as shell beads, uh, by 30,000 years ago, and long-distance trade in objects before 10,000 years ago. Um, it's not yet been ascertained whether there were single or multiple waves of migration into Australia, although recent genetic evidence indicates multiple donor groups. I mean, one... I, I, I hate to say it, but it's probably... Some of it is probably lost to history because I assume that they went through like a population bottleneck just like native americans did 
did when like you know Europeans first came there, right? I mean, that's like, possible. Like, did they suffer from European diseases? I'm I'm gonna look into that, but I I don't know. That's that's possible. Uh, I mean, they're comprised of many different distinct people, um, like over that sixty five uh, uh, thousand years. Um, so they have di- they have different like uh, they have different like shared. Uh, or, or like beliefs and, and history and stuff, only in the past 200 years have they started to identify as a single group of uh, Aborigines identity over the time and place and family lineage. Um, but they, they originally, there were a bunch of different tribes, kind of like the Native Americans were. Right. Um, so... Like they like they go on to say that there um, is... Da, 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 they, there, that there's more than 200 distinct... Aboriginal languages that were spoken in hundreds of dialects. Yep. And they also had sophisticated trade networks, intercultural relationships, laws, and religion that was set up as well, which is quite unique and quite advanced in my opinion. (laughs) So I I just want to talk about the, um, their, their, I have a couple paragraphs on their religion. Yeah. And worldview, and then I'll kick it over to Gerard. So the worldview of Aborigine uh, people centered on, quote, the dreaming or dream time, which it was a complex and comprehensive concept embodying the past, present, and future, as well as virtually every aspect of life. It included the creative era at the dawn of time, where mythic beings shaped the land and populated it with flora, fauna, and human beings, and left behind the rules for social life. After their physical death and transformation into heavenly or earthly bodies, the indestructible creative beings withdrew from the earth into the spiritual realm. As the Aborigine understood it, the dreaming beings retained control of all power and fertility, which they would release automatically into the human realm as long as humans followed their blueprint. This included the regular performance of rituals to ensure a continued flow of life, giving power. Spirit beings were used as messengers to communicate with the living and to introduce new knowledge into human society. Though dreams and other states of altered consciousness, or sorry, through those, the living could come into contact with the spiritual realm and gain strength through it. Diverse features of the landscape provided tangible proofs of this reality and the world-creating powers of the dreaming beings and a rich complex of myths, dances, rituals, and objects bound the human, spiritual, and physical realms together into a single cosmic order. Despite the uncertainties involved in getting a living, Aboriginal people had a strong sense of self and a religious confidence in their ability to cope with and control their physical and social world. Hmm. That's really interesting how their religion kind of ties into their day-to-day life as well and how they kind of interact with that in that dream state and how that kind of... So they use hallucinogens. Yeah. I, I don't know what it didn't say on that, but... Yeah. And it's kind of like their way of getting spiritually centered. Yeah. Hmm. So what I kind of wanted to talk about is actually a, a issue that's made kind of national headlines a little bit here and there. It's more of a modern issue. Um, overpopulation of kangaroos. Back a in... very sub, a very dear subject to Jared's heart. <laughs> uh, back in 2017, the population was up at like 45 million, which is more than people. More than there are more kangaroos in 
in Australia than there are people living there. Um, right now in Australia, I think uh, 26, uh, 25.6 million, and there's 45 million uh, kangaroos. Um, so yeah, kangaroo overpopulation is becoming a big issue. <clears throat> They're actually selling like hunting, hunting licenses and stuff like that to try to call down the population. Um, the population now is down to like 36.7 million. So they dropped it about 9 million um, in the past, what is that, six years? Um, but yeah, uh, kangaroos are in Australia's coat of arms, the tail of the national airline, and every year state authorities allow licensed hunters to kill millions of them. Government and wildlife experts say some species of kangaroo are so plentiful they need to be regularly culled to protect the land, other native species, and the animals themselves from starving during times of drought. But the legal calling of a national icon has enraged some activists, uh, who for years have campaigned for an end to the practice they say is cruel and driven by commercial interests. Um, I mean, I, I get where they're coming from with the commercial interests and stuff like that, but it is like a legitimately like ecological issue. If there's an overabundance of a specific herbivore in a specific environment, they actually start destroying the land itself by eating so much of the, uh, of the, of the plant species, you know what I mean? Um, it literally changes, uh, changes the way that the rivers move, the way that the plants grow, the way that the soil well, retains moisture. Like, it's an ecological nightmare if you have too many herbivores that are overpopulated and are destroying natural uh, uh, plants, you know what I mean? Like, they, they help preserve... Well, yeah, it's, it's all about balance, right? Exactly. I mean... And that's where keystone species come into play. The keystone species are what we hunted to extinction, which were their natural predators. So the thylacine? Yep. Yeah. And that's like similar to here in our home state where we don't really have any natural predators for like the deer, you know? Yeah. So we have hunters go out and kill them now instead of wolves, you know? Or, I mean, they have, there's still bears and stuff, but they're reduced in population. They, I, okay, like touching on wolves, I think that they're actually... Aren't they trying to reintroduce them in Colorado? Yes, but they're running into a lot of issues. It passed, like, the law passed, but they're running into, like, a lot of logistical issues. Um, like, our neighboring state won't give us wolves. <laughs> but their wolves are naturally... Oh, I thought we... I thought we bred them here. Um, I, I think we have a few wolves in, like, the northern, northwestern part, but not many at all. And they're trying to get more reintroduced. Uh, but... Uh, the problem is like landowners and, and farmers and stuff like if they get into their land and start hunting their 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 livestock like right. they, they kill them you know so what's what's really stupid is I'm not gonna say what park I live next to but my dad and I have walked around this one multiple times and we've seen wolves here no way or coyotes or whatever coyotes yeah. yes. Uh, probably, yeah, coyotes, most definitely. Yeah. Like, but coyotes at least are, in a pack of two or three. Yeah, but they're they're not, like, big enough and strong enough to take down, like, deer or elk, you know. Um, maybe, like, babies and stuff or, like, ill ones. But, Which predators do naturally anyways, right? Yeah. But wolves are more so, like, they'll even hunt the healthy ones. Right. Too. So, um, what's the, what's the biggest predator, um elk and deer have now uh probably bear cars well and humans, <laughs> humans yeah yeah humans for sure You're right. i mean it is humans more more killed. bears well you said you said biggest i was thinking physically sorry 
<laughs> just wanted to pull one over on you. Well, you yeah. Think, you, the language you used for the question would set me up to fail from the get-go, okay? Well, let's say it's a redneck and they run into a, a deer. Hey, that's dinner, buddy. Don't, don't, uh, don't <laughs> so go on about how kangaroos are in. Yeah, uh, yeah, under uh, government programs, licensed hunters earn a fee for each kilogram of kangaroo, the carcass uh, that are processed for meat, skin, hide, and exported to around 70 countries. The industry is worth about 200 million Australian dollars or 133 million US dollars each year. Uh, according to the Kangaroo Industry Association of Australia, the KIAA, uh, the main commercial bo industrial body. For decades, kangaroo leather has been a material of choice for manufacturers from high-end soccer cleats due to the material's suppleness and strength. But this month, U.S. sports companies like Nike and Ger German rival Puma announced they are phasing out kangaroo leather or K-leather in favor of synthetic alternatives. Well, it seems like it'd be really rough. No, it's supple. It's soft. Oh. Yeah. That's, like, that's why like, it's so good. It's like, have you ever felt a cow? Mm -hmm. Like, up in Greeley, like... When we go, we went cow tipping a couple times, right? Ah, uh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. Or, okay, I was lonely, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just went on your own. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, but, like, with uh, cows, like, when you feel their skin, A, I think they're ugly. Like, cows, I think they're some of the ugliest animals How ever. dare you be mean to the moose? Yeah. But then, uh, like, they're, to me, their hide is really... Rough? Yeah. Well, I'm really allergic to them, so I've never touched a cow hide. I break, I literally break out in hives. You're allergic to everything. Yeah. My body's uh, immune system is very overreactive. Um, but, yeah, da, 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 where was I at? Uh, neither company mentioned animal rights issues in their press statements announcing the decision. It did not respond to requests for further comment. But animal rights groups claim it's a win after years of lobbying is a great day for kangaroos. Um, but if they're overpopulated, that's still a problem. I know, yeah. Like, it's either God. reintroduce the main uh, predators, or they're gonna starve. Yeah, but the problem was problem with reintroducing the main predators is they're extinct. We hunt them to extinction, you know. Like the, we were talking about the thylacine before we started the podcast. Um, like their official extinction date was 1936. But they say there still might be a few alive here and there in the southern portion of the country. Um, and they've had, like, photos and stuff, but they haven't really, like, officially said there's a, a healthy population there. So there's all, like, I don't know if they're really there or if people are making them up or I don't know. Like the thylacine sightings? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the cryptids. It, it's, yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but until we have, like, photo proof or something, how is it any different from a cryptid sighting? Well, that's they do have photo proof. That's a thing. There's Not like, the black and white photos. The old, no, there's new modern ones. Look it up. Like, watch. I mean, that's good then. Look up modern thylacine uh, photos that you'll find of you. Um, They're probably blurry. No, a few of them are actually pretty good. Um... But yeah, a bill was introduced in the U.S. House in 2021 to ban kangaroo imports, but it failed to pass. Similar year, uh, this year, similar bills were introduced in Arizona, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and uh, Oregon, where Nike is based, and Vermont. But so far, none have come become to law. Protesters have also lodged petitions with the European Parliament. So far, with little impact, the campaign against kangaroo products has caused frustration for many in Australia. 
not only within the government, but also among wildlife experts who say licensed culling is necessary to maintain suitable, uh, sustainable numbers and to prevent the animal's own suffering when they compete with livestock and each other for scarce food and water, which is 100% correct. Like if, like if the, like, let's say like a specific region is only able to have like 100,000 kangaroos in it, but the population's at 200,000 in that area, they're going to outcompete all of the other herbivores there and out and, and actually end up starving the majority of the population there because there's not enough food for them to sustain themselves, especially during droughts and harder times. And so it's important that you, we call the population to have a sustainable ecosystem. Uh, so by the way, have you ever actually seen like what a kangaroo pouch actually looks like? No. Yeah. Like I actually saw a video of like a, I think they're called a joey. Yeah. Like the here. baby... Yeah. Uh, kangaroo developing like it's gross. <laughs> well, the thylacines are marsupials too. They they technically have pouches uh, as well. Well, there are there's a aren't marsupials only on Australia? I think so. Yeah, and well, like and like what Madagascar or whatever. I don't know. That's a good question. Can you look that up real quick? Yeah. Uh, did you find the uh, modern day thylacine pictures? Yeah. So one. I'll, I'll pull it up again just so I'm not... Um, Misinterpreting it. Yeah. Okay, so... One that they show is... I mean, you, you can see it for yourself, Jared. It's like... I mean, it does look like... This is saying it's from 2019. I mean, it's blurry, but... Um, <laughs> like, that looks like a thylacine. It does. Like yeah. it's like it's kind of that picture looks like it's, it's taken. It, out it of looks like it's like a, a mountain. Well, my, well, the tree line wouldn't be like that. Yeah, it looks what? like it's on like a hill. Oh, maybe. Right. Yeah, but that does look like here's the branches poking out, right? And the biggest thing that is like a dead giveaway. Look how straight that tail is, and look how the tails are in right. all the other photos. Like, um, that matches pretty dang well. One. One other thing that got me is, look how wide, wide, wide it can unhinge its jaw. Holy moly. Yeah. That's insane. Like, there's a comparison to, like, a, a like a wolf. Yeah. Look at that. Like. Their jaws are bigger yeah, than wolves. It, it looks like their jaw is unhinged or whatever. But here's another one from. And they're called the Tasmanian Tigers, essentially. Yeah. So it's like a, that looks like a hunting cam or something. Yeah. And but it's like a. It looks like at least a fox-looking thing but running out in the... Fox don't have tails like that. I'm, I'm not saying it's a fox. I'm just saying... Like. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that doesn't look like a dog, right? Mm -mm. Um, that tail is just so unique to this type of right, species. Right, like it's just... Straight and straight skinny. Straight out. Yeah, yeah, it's not like poofy or anything. Um, but otherwise, these are all old black and white photos from the 1800s. Well, no, there's another one that I saw that was pretty modern. Um... It was like of a back alley. That, I don't know about that one. It's I mean, really the, this one's really... That could be a dog. Yeah. Um, but no, there was another one that, that was like down a back alley that had pretty good quality. I don't know why, why I didn't pull it up with your search. Hmm. And it was like colored. I, I mean, I mo mo one, I most of them are black and white. So I, I'm just confirming this. The Tasmanian tiger and the thylacine are the same thing, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, uh, here it is, uh, Luke. I don't know. So. Oh, okay. I see. So, the this town, uh, town of Nanup, um actually has these uh like figurine models of them like you could do like a wildlife walk uh -huh. and they have these models of, uh, of them and that's what that picture was so that that's so it's not a real one no and it's it, a model of one yeah and there's several models of them throughout that that's that's the photo that i was seeing um i just had to look into it deeper uh but kind of going back to the like kangaroos um like this is a uh a, a research a ecologist and a conservative biologist or conservation biologist from the research center of um, La Trope University in Melbourne. He said the subtlety, subtleties of this, I think, are probably lost from a distance. If there isn't an industry for kangaroo leather and le uh, meat, uh, kangaroos are still going to be shot. I promise you that. Landowners are still going to shoot kangaroos and it's going to be a worse animal welfare outcome than if it was done in a regulated and controlled manner. Well, I, I, I don't know if I think this is before we started the podcast, but uh, Jared and I were talking about, uh, I think it went, it's a viral video, right? Where it's the kangaroo holding the dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the guy literally walks up and just socks it in the jar or whatever. Yeah, I think that was a pretty popular and then, video. And then the, the, the kangaroo just stares at him. Yeah, he's like shocked for yeah. a second. He's like, what? <laughs> but it was like literally, I think, choking Chocolate. the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, like, um, they're big animals. They're good size. And they, they seem like it's like a, I'm going to look up how fast they can move. Oh, very fast. And do you know one of their best, uh, like, um, protective strategies against predators, too? Is actually like going into... grouping up together? No, actually going into water. Oh. They actually drowned. Uh, if you see, like, a kangaroo in water staring at you, like, if you go to, like, mess with it, it'll actually drown you. <laughs> so, they can reach heights anywhere from... Three to eight feet and can weigh... Three to eight feet? Um, 40 to 200 pounds. Oh, so it depends and on the And the males weigh 110 to 150 pounds on average and females 37 to 88 pounds. So the males are way bigger. Uh, so that was probably a male kangaroo that did that to that dog because that was a big kangaroo. Yeah. So according to this, it's saying they can reach speeds of up to 43 miles per hour. <laughs> I'm gonna look up an ostrich just because, like, aren't aren't emus or os? Have you heard of the emu war? That's one we should cover, but that's uh, different topic for different. Yeah. <laughs> so emus can re reach thirty one miles per hour. So they're faster than so, emus. Yeah. Um. So, I'll we'll we'll get back to that in a second, but I want to talk about disease really quick and how it affected the population. Okay. Of Aborigine. Oh, okay. So this isn't this isn't <clears throat> Australia wide. This is more of a concentrated thing. But just imagine this, you know, happening over and over again because it was, um, you know, like just imagine it on a bigger scale. Yeah. So one of the biggest impacts on the Aborigine population. Uh, was the introduction of diseases previously unknown to the uh, people. It's been estimated that disease accounted for up to 60% of the Aborigine deaths 
even before Europeans began arriving, up to a third of the population um, of the eastern tribes had been killed by an epidemic of smallpox that spread down from Sydney. Oh, so it was even before... Yeah. Oh, wow. So, like, I mean, you... Like, think about it. Like, um... Probably even in the Middle Ages and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like it was all the way in America, right? I mean, it's... It was in Europe. <laughs> like, maybe there were sailors from China, Japan, you know, yeah. those that reached it, and that introduced disease and caused... Yeah, well, they did have, like, a, a sophisticated trade network, too, even between the tribes. Right. And so that's how diseases spread, too, you know? So this goes on to say... Um, while the European population had a strong resistance to diseases such as bronchitis, measles, scarlet fever. I've, I've heard of scarlet fever. Chicken pox and even the common cold. Exposure to these diseases was often fatal to Aborigine population. Added to this were other diseases such as smallpox, tuberculosis, and venereal disease that were Deadly for European and Aboriginal populations. So, mm -hmm. once again, uh, smallpox, yeah. right? Just like for the natives, Native Americans. Nasty smallpox. Yeah. yeah. Good thing. Like, we're... like, have you seen drawings of, like, just rows and rows and rows bodies. of people mm -hmm. or bodies? Yeah. Um, so changes to diet also became a source of ill health and disease. Some changes were caused by restricted restricted ad access to traditional food. From land being fenced off, native animals being shot for sport, and the introduction of hoofed animals such as sheep. For some, these changes led to starvation. For others, this led to the adoption of a European-style diet, including refined sugar, flour, and offal. Offal? I've heard of that before, but no. Instead of a high-protein diet. The impact of a diet based on these introduced foodstuffs was made worse by the provisioning of rations that consisted of the worst quality and cheapest grain and meats available. Um, so, sorry, they, they go on to say that movement away from a nomadic life also had a massive impact on their health. Constant availability of European food led to gatherings of more Aborigine, which in turn facilitated spread of disease so it was like a cycle right yeah yeah so it's a positive positive feedback loop in a sense yeah because their food became centralized they became centralized and it caused diseases to spread much more efficiently in the population yeah um so do you can i kick it back to you yeah okay um so how many kangaroos are there really uh are, are there um kangaroos are once hunted by the country's indigenous population for food and by dingoes wild native dogs whose numbers have been vastly reduced by baiting, trapping, and shooting. British colonizers also built a few new dams and water holes for livestock, giving kangaroos ready access to water. Uh, now only one natural uh, cap on numbers is drought. You get massive starvation and massive death. Due to the vast areas they roam, kangaroos are notoriously difficult to count, but every year state officials conduct surveys using helicopters and fixed-wing uh, aircraft, um, sometimes aided by inspections on the ground. Annual quotas are then set for the type and number of micropods that can be killed in some states that's no more than 20 percent and in victoria it's strictly less than 10 percent according to the latest government figures 36.5 million kangaroos and uh, wall wallaroos are subject to population control 
uh, roam the five states and allow commercial harvest, South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, South Australia, and Western Australia. This year, quotas in those states allow for around five million to be killed. Jeez. Five million? Mm -hmm. Wow. But their population is 36 million. Yeah. Like, uh... Um, and they just repopulate really quickly, too. All right. I'm going to look up how many uh, kids they have here. Um, Probably four to five, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Joey's, do kangaroos of a year. So kangaroos usually have one annually. Uh -huh. The joey remains in the pouch for nine months and continues to suckle until... Uh, 12 to 17 months of age. Mm. Kangaroos can have three babies at one time. So, yeah, you're right. Like they About three. Yeah. Uh, can, so, one, one thing I want you to look up, you, you know how there's those wild pigs that have been introduced to the U.S. that are, like, really bad? You know, yeah. like the boars? Yeah. Um, can you see if they're in Australia? Um, I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, so invasive species in Australia. Yeah, well, the boars more specifically. Um, so, moving on to uh, when Australia was used as a penal colony for uh, England. Between 1788 and 1868, more than 162,000 convicts were transported to Australia. Of these, about 7,000 arrived in 1833 alone. They were transported as punishment for crimes committed in Britain and Ireland. In Australia, their lives were hard as they helped to build the young colony. Um, when they had served their sentences, most stayed and some even became successful settlers. Um, so why transportation? Transportation was a form of criminal punishment uh, that emerged in the British legal system from the early 17th century as an alternative to execution. <laughs> Would you rather be put on a boat or hung? Well, let's go on the boat. Let's go on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I think that was more expensive for them too. Yeah, no. Um, so going back to your request, um, the from the largest population of wild camels in the world to the domestic pets gone wild, we've discovered Australia's most invasive species, which is the wild boar. Yeah, told you. Um, which is the uh, also known as the wild swine, commonly wild pig, Eurasia wild pig, or simply wild pig. It's a suited native to much of Eurasia and North Africa and has been introduced to America and Oceania. The species is now one of the most wide-ranging animals in the world as well as the most widespread pseudoform. And they they reproduce... Quick. Crazily. Well, don't they have like seven <laughs> babies? I don't know without looking, but it's a lot. Yeah. Because they'll have little piglets. Piglets. Um, so many crimes today that would be considered minor offenses were punishable by hanging. And there were 225 identified capital offenses at the time. The American colonies were the main destination for convict transportation in the 18th century. And a thriving business developed around the process. British businessmen obtained contracts for transportation from local sheriffs. They selected the convicts they wanted and usually uh, based on their ability to work. And once the transport ships um, 
arrived in the colonies. Um, they were sold on the convict's labor for the duration of the their sentences. Let's be honest. They probably just wanted to ship out as many Irish as they could. <laughs> <laughs> so the Transportation Act of 1717. Prior to 1717, the legal processes behind transportation were obscure as transportation itself was not a sentence but could be organized by indirect means. So this Act of 1717 simplified and legitimized the process of that were of convicts that were guilty of capital crimes but commuted to the king would re receive 14 years transportation. <laughs> it's so awkward to say. 14 well, years uh, transportation. Well, those convicted of non-capital offenses could receive seven years. Returning to England before the sentence was complete was a capital offense in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> so you get another 14 years. <laughs> oh, I know you. You get the rope. You're going back in yeah. 14 years. Yes. Or send you to shithole like Australia. <laughs> and I wonder if it was like the... Or Finland. I wonder if it was like wealthy and middle class people that were able to like lobby for them to be transported instead of executed. Yeah. So I, I mean, let, let's be honest. There's probably mostly poor people, right? That were like sent there? Yeah. You think so? Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't the poor people be killed and the rich ones be sent there to still live? Because he said through other means. Well, like, they, they said mainly it was for the labor. Oh, right? okay. So then it was poor. Yeah. So the rich just I ended mean, up being killed. <laughs> I don't... I mean, there probably weren't lawyers per se, but like still, um, mm -hmm. you know, money Influence could still them. grease the wheels, right? Yeah. So uh, how did this influence America? That made transportation simpler and increased the number of convicts transported to America. More than 50,000 criminals had been transported by 1775. These convicts were instrumental in the early development of what became the U.S. of A. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's <laughs> that, that America was also a penal colony. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. But the American colony's unofficial function as a penal colony came to an abrupt halt with the Revolutionary War, of course. 1776? Um, with independence, America stopped accepting convicts from Britain. Wow. That's something. So, um, transportation from Britain ceased from 1776 to 88, and the rapidly growing prison population was housed on ship hulks anchored in rivers and along with sh the sheltered coastline of southern England. The hulks quickly became disease-ridden, of course, with one-third of the prisoners dying on board. Holy Jeez. shit. Jesus. <laughs> oh, my God. The gov well, South Africa was probably one, A right? Pinkoli? Yeah. Pro yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, the government in investigated... Transported convicts to Africa and the Caribbean, but neither destination was deemed suitable. In 1783, James Matra, who had been a junior officer on James Cook's 1768 voyage to the Pacific, and therefore one of the few Europeans to have seen the continent of Australia, proposed to the British government that Botany Bay was a suitable location for a colony. Joseph Banks uh, vigorously supported the proposal. 
Initially, the plan was for the colony to be an asylum for British loyalists who wanted to leave the newly independent America. But after a meeting with Home Secretary Lord Sidney, the scheme was reformulated to comprise mostly convicts instead. Uh, so in 1785, orders in council were issued by the British government for the creation of a penal colony. Um, so uh, the first fleet left on May 13, 1787, that sailed from Portsmouth and arrived in Botany Bay on January 18, 1788. And within a week, the fleet left the bay as Philip decided it was unsuitable for the establishment of a colony. <laughs> Man, this place sucks! It's not even good enough for the prisoners. You know what? We're going to Japan. Screw this shit. <laughs> they sailed north to Sydney Cove, now Circular Quay, where the 751 convicts and 252 marines and administrators disembarked. It was there that Philip established the settlement. Um, da, 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 da. So convicts were mainly from England and Wales with a large contingent of Irish, 24%. I told you, they just wanted to get rid of the Irish. <laughs> and a much smaller number of Scots, 5%. Most were sentenced in the rapidly growing cities of Britain where displaced rural populations struggled to find work in an increasingly industrialized world. Man, that kind of reminds me of something nowadays, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is a cycle. A cyclical event. Right? Rates of theft increase as people stole food and clothing to survive. Once again, never heard of that. A conviction for robbery of these small items could result in transportation for seven years, and about 20% of those convicted were female. A small proportion of convicts were political prisoner, prisoners, including Irish Home Rule insurgents, the Unionist toll-puddle martyrs, anti-industrializing Luddites, Luddites, Canadian rebels. Man, I would love to have met a Canadian rebel in the 1800s. And political reforming chartists. And pro I, I hate to say it, but, you know, like, the religion at the time would have still been Anglican, right? I mean, it is now, right? So it, which is Protestant, so that's probably why they shipped all the Irish, right? Because they were probably Catholic. Yeah. Um, so convict life in Australia, and then I'll kick it to jerk. I'm sorry, I just find this fascinating. No, I <laughs> Convicts were sent to Australia to work. Their sentences, I could just imagine a bunch of Irish people getting off the boat. <laughs> so Irish. They're, they're sent. Can you imagine how effing hot it was? Yeah. No air conditioning, no nothing. Just And, oh and the change God. from, like, Ireland and, like, yeah. up over to that. Yeah, know, it's, like, it's like, more cold, windy... To hot as shit. Mm -hmm. Their sentences stipulated they would work from sunrise to sunset, Monday to Saturday. How's Saturday. that any different from my <laughs> Yeah. This was their punishment, but the colonial administration also viewed it as an opportunity for redemption. 
as Governor Phillip believed that, quote, honest sweat was the convict's best chance of improvement. Convicts lived under very strict rule, and any breaking of those regulations could result in punishment such as whippings, the wearing of leg irons, or solitary confinement. It's almost like nothing's changed. Nothing at all. <laughs> Dude, solitary confinement is probably Hard one of the think. worst. My cousin went through it. Like, It's very scarring. It's We're social creatures. terrible. Yeah, it's literally like psychological torture. God. Serious crimes could result in sent. Like, I guess, yes, we need prisons, but, like, to me, they should outlaw solitary. Like, shit. Um, serious crimes could result in sentences to hard labor prisons such as Port Arthur or Nor Norfolk Island. Of course, they'd set up prison camps. By the mid-1830s, only 6% of convicts were locked up. The massive majority worked for the government. Great. <laughs> Well, I came over on about 10 years ago, but now I'm free, so I'm going to whip your ass into shape. <laughs> or free sellers. And with good behavior, could earn a ticket of leave, conditional pardon, or even an absolute pardon. You know that bread you stole? Well, it's time to... Yeah. God, seven terrible. years, you've been a good, good worker. Well, under such orders, convicts could earn their own living. The majority of convicts stayed on in Australia after their sentence was served. Like, yeah, I, would you want to go back? No. I'd be like, Not you yeah, I'm just dying to go to the shithole. I mean, can you imagine how polluted the skies were? Well, not, it, not then, because that wasn't the Industrial Revolution. 1800s. That, what, that was the 1717 when they started it, right? Well, like what Roughly. Period, what time period are you talking about right now, though? The 1800s and yeah, 1800s. Then yeah, there's a, probably a decent amount of pollution. Yeah. Not only that, but the the, the, the in London and the big cities is very polluted from human. Uh, well, yeah, there's human mm. excrement on the street, right? Yeah. So once free, they could own land, uh, and under Governor Latchland McCary, some were appointed to keep positions in the colonial government. So going back to the kangaroos. Yeah, the most important part. Dan. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's very modern. It's an actual issue they're running into. I'm not saying it is. I'm just um, being a wise ass. <laughs> in recent years, annual quotas haven't been met. Only 4% of the total population has been eliminated, where they, they're, they're, they set quotas anywhere from 20 to 10%. So only 4% has been eliminated. They, so they're not meeting their quota of, like, hunting, you know. Um... Calls are carried out uh, at night by licensed hunters who shine bright lights into the kangaroo's eyes, temporarily blinding them before taking their shot. The animals' uh, carcasses are collected and taken to a process center where they're inspected, processed, and prepared for sale. Um, governments also set non-commercial quotas to allow licensed farmers to kill a certain number of kangaroos on their property. Those carcasses are, are not collected or recorded. Beyond the cruelty of shooting an animal, activists dispute population estimates and say anecdotal evidence suggesting kangaroo numbers are falling. The claim wildlife experts say are not true. Um, I, I don't know if I would believe an activist over a wildlife expert. I don't know. Um, many <laughs> of them are of conservative concern or conservation concern. They're not the ones that are harvesting for leather product. Um, of 60 species of kangaroos and wallabies, only six are approved for meat export. Um, although in most states, only four types are hunted. The red kangaroo, eastern, western, gray kangaroo, and the common walroo. Uh, can you look up a walroo? 
It's a wallaroo, right? Yeah, W A L L A R O O. A smaller, a smaller marsupial in the micropod family that includes kangaroos. So you just looked it up? No, that's just the description towards the end of it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, they just look like. I guess smaller they're kangaroos? smaller kangaroo. Their their coat looks grayer. Oh yeah. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of yeah. hilarious. They're really cute. Look at look at this. That one's a white one. It's, a, uh, <laughs> it's an albino. Yeah. <laughs> Should you keep a wallaroo as a pet? Oh my god. No. <laughs> no. These are ugly animals, God. I just said they're cute, and you just said they're ugly. God. What's wrong well, with you? I'm sorry, but I think llamas and alpacas are ugly too. But that's personal reasons. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the campaign against the kangaroo trade. A former elected member of the parliament um, has made it his mission to end the trade. Uh, he appeared in the documentary Kangaroo, a love-hate story. Um, the inquiry heard more than 400 submissions, but ultimately the state government only accepted two of the 23 recommendations to work more closely with the indigenous community over kangaroo management and produce more information to educate the public on how, how it estimates kangaroo numbers and sets harvest quotas. As the report noted, a key argument is whether kangaroo populations need managing at all. Why are life experts say yes, while the campaigns like Pearson argue that without calling their numbers would self-regulate and with calling based on anecdotal surveys, numbers are falling. Um, Pearson doesn't trust the government's methodology. They are being uh, managed properly, apparently. Um, then we wouldn't be seeing dramatic drops of kangaroos in areas which are, aren't even particularly rural farmland. Um, uh, campaigners also point to the killing of joeys found to be in the pouches of shot female kangaroos. Um, state that joeys should be killed without a concussive blow or with a concussive blow to the head. Um, yeah, they, have left they, the give you a, they give you a whiffle that. <laughs> uh, often the one at foot will hop away because it's terrified that it, as its mother had just been shot. Now the chances of the shooter catching that little joey and killing it is slim so it dies from predation, starvation, or exposure. The whole picture is very, very ugly is what he says. The industry pushing back. Uh, so the KIAA sounds exasperated when uh, asked about activists' efforts to ban kangaroo exports. If they took the time to understand and look at what the reality is, they would see that this is a very well-managed, highly regulated industry. They are a wonderful animal and a national icon, but these government conservation programs are in place to ensure a better outcome for their well-being and health. I would love to meet an Australian hippie. <laughs> He said the kangaroos aren't killed for their skin. It's a byproduct of a much larger meat trade, according to the king. That isn't going to stop because Nike and Puma are no longer buying cave leather. <laughs> uh, but Nike, Nike, yeah, known for their child labor practices. Yeah, what a morally upstanding right company. Well, they didn't say they're doing it because of the cave leather. They're switching because it's cheaper to create. Stuff. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's the capitalist. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ethics thy name is capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? We're saving money. What? <laughs> oh, this is interesting. Um, so, the home of the nation's capital, the Australian Capital Territory. Um, is that Sydney? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, calls Eastern Grey Kangaroos, but it's doing things differently. Oh, last year, the global government started uh, trialing a gonacong, uh, an amino, a, a contraceptive vaccine developed by the U.S. government to control some wildlife and feral animals, including deer. 
Um, so basically they're trying and to... It makes them sterile? Yeah. And so they're basically sterilizing a portion of the population um, so that they don't overpopulate. I don't um, know how I feel about that. But... Yeah. So the government officials well, say it's it, administered... Let, let, let's be honest. Countries. There's no easy solution, right? No, there's Yeah, not. that everyone would agree is humane. Yeah. Because you still have to kill the damn thing. Well, not if you, uh, not if you sterilize it. You're not killing it. It just can't have babies. Right. Um, so it's administered around 60 fe female kangaroos in two reserves through a labor-intensive process that sees the animals darted with an anesthetic bef before being injected with the vaccine. <laughs> they are <laughs> 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 yeah. then monitored and cared for until the aesthetic wears off, at which time they are free to return to the reserve. Um, he said over that time, wildlife uh, officials hope that fewer kangaroos will be needed to be called. He doesn't expect the vaccine to ever fully eliminate the need to manage numbers. Called or cold? <laughs> Any culling through the use of firearms is a confronting topic. It almost goes against everything we aim to do from a conservation perspective. The welfare of the animal and any young are at their highest priority for us in undertaking what is a confronting program. Unlike other Australian districts, ACT doesn't have a commercial kangaroo industry. Last year, 1,645 kangaroos were culled, a small number of skins distributed to uh, traditional custodians. So does that mean the local aborigine? Yeah, and so that's pretty much like the end of it. Uh, okay, well... I, I, I did want to talk about the... the I'll throw, throw it back to you, but after you're done with that, I wanted to talk about the seven legendary yeah, Australians. So we're nearing an hour, but... So, no, so we can go for two hours. I just need to... I'm, I'm going to talk about the aborigine reserve, then we'll s just start the other part and do the... Do that for like a half hour or so. Yeah. Okay. So, touching on Aborigine reserves really quick. Uh, they were used from the 19th century to keep... Uh, yeah. Well, we... we yeah. Was I'm, I'm not going to read that part. Protectors of Aborigine had been appointed from as early as 1836 in South Australia with the government proclaiming that Aborigine people uh, were to, quote, be considered as much under the safeguard of the law as the colonists themselves and equally entitled to the privileges of British subjects. Under the Aborigine Orphans Ordinance, 1844, the protector was made legal guardian of, quote, every half-caste and other unprotected Aborigine child whose parents are dead or unknown. Schools, schools and reserves were set up despite these attempts at protection. Morehouse himself still presided over the Rufus River Massacre in 1841, where 30 to 40 uh, Aborigine uh, were uh, killed. Uh, the Office of Protector was abolished in 1856, and within four years, God, 35 out of 42 Aborigine reserves in South Australia alone had been leased to settlers. Oh, geez. 35 of 42. God, Jeez. God, we were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> In eighteen, we have so much blood on our hands as a species. We don't even, we don't even know. Yeah. In eighteen thirty-nine, George, was that you? It was a chair. George Augustus. <laughs> I don't edit these damn chairs. <laughs> George Augustus Robinson. Was appointed as the chief protector in Lansdowne, Victoria. 
In the second <laughs> half of the 19th century, oh, I can smell it. In an attempt to <laughs> the frontiers, the windows are open this way, not that way. Devastation by disease and to pr provide a humane environment for Aboriginal people perceived as a dying race. The colonial governments passed legislation designed to, quote, protect them. The idea was that by legislating to create certain territory for them, the clashes over land would stop and the people would become less reliant on government rations by using the land uh, to farm with aboriginally protection boards being created in most colonies less states. Hello everyone, uh, so this is the second part. Uh, we're doing seven uh, legendary uh, cryptids with uh, Gerard starting and kicking it off. Ayo! Um, so yeah, seven legendary Australian creatures from myth and folklore. Uh, number one is the Australian Bunyip, the Wemba Wemba, Regent of Victoria. Uh, first acknowledged by the Aborigines people in stories of the uh, dream time uh, tens of thousands of years ago, the sightings of the Bunyip were also documented by English settlers in the 1800s. Over time, the description of the legendary Bunyip have, has taken many different forms, from a mythical beast to a nocturnal amphibian that lurks in swamps and billabongs and riverbeds. According to the Australian Aborigines religion and mythology, um, the word Bunyip was originally uh, originated by the Wemba Wemba people of Victoria, and is roughly translated to scary monster or an evil spirit. The water-dwelling creature is allegedly a sea monster that feeds, feasts on humans whose cries can be heard in the outback waters come nightfall. Nowadays, scientists and investigators believe, believe the bunyip could now or could be a now-extinct giant wombat known as the uh, Dioprodon that lurked uh, the inland waters 20,000 years ago um, and the haunting sounds perhaps coming from the bitter marsh birds. Others believe it may have just been a case of mistaken identity from European settlers who at the time also found kangaroos to be quite mythical in their own right. While the debate rages on, the mysterious, uh, mysterious creatures from the Dark Lagoon has become a central part of Australian culture, fe uh, featured in art, music, film, television, books, and tours. Oh, that's a weird looking thing. Looks like a dinosaur yeah, bonk combination. Yeah. Why does it have a T-Rex face? What the, the heck? Pass it over to Luke. It, it looks like that weird dinosaur from... Uh, did you ever see the movie Dinosaur? I, I think it's a Disney movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that CGI. Yeah. It like came out in 1999 or 2000. Yeah. It kind of looks like that. A little bit, yeah. Otway's Panther. The jury is still out on the existence of the famed Otway's Panther. There have been alleged sightings of the elusive, quote, big cat scurrying its way through the Otway Ranges where the bush meets the beach off Victoria's Great Ocean Road. Supposed sightings of black panthers in the bush have been documented since the 1830s, ranging from rumors of big cats in the bush by New Eastern migrants to sworn testimonies and videos taken in recent years. All have given the legendary creature a similar description, that of a large black four-legged creature similar to a panther. So a panther, what, isn't that South America? Panthers? Yeah. 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 Some explanations have been historical 
exotic animal trays or an evolutionary trail of feral cats in the area, while others have suggested that they may have come from traveling circuses or visiting soldiers years ago. It's probably just exotic animal trays. I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not, whatever. Similar sightings have also been reported in other states, including the Blue Mountains, which are known as the Lithgow Panther and Tantanula Tiger, as well as those in other Victorian regions, such as the Grampians Puma and the Gippsland, Gippsland Phantom Cat, which I have heard of. The Phantom Cat? Yeah, I have. The Phantom Cat. Uh, Hawkesbury River Monster, New South Wales. Monstrously tall eels, you say? Oh, God. You may, have, uh, you may have to see it to believe it, but this is exactly what believers of the Hawkeye Bury River Monster claim to have seen, also known as the Mooney Mooney Monster. Anecdotal, uh, the anecdotal sightings of a mystical cryptid creature were reported in the 1800s, although Aber Aborigines rock art in the region describe a similar creature known as the Mollywalk, uh, dates back more than 3,000 years. Most accounts refer to the sea monster as gray with a large eel-like body, elongated head, four flippers, and a thick tail. Allegedly. So it's just another Loch Ness monster. <laughs> like, what's so... Allegedly, yeah, wh where do you get eels? I don't know. Allegedly, the water serpent may have been floating around Australia's shores since the Jurassic era. But modern legend, uh, legend hunters have not yet provided evidence of the existence of the Australia's own Loch Ness monster. Researchers have found that the creature may have been a large crocodile, catfish, eel, or swimming gona. What is a gona? G-O-A-N-N-A. Yara Ma Yahoo, Australian Outback. Vampire Goblin, Frog Mutant, or Mini Monkey Man. A cryptid creature known as the Outback Vampire has been told in Australian Aboriginal Aborigine mythology since the dream time. The Yara Ma Yahoo is said to be a tiny red man with a large head and no teeth resembling that of a small monkey man or mini monster that drops from fig trees and uses suckers on the ends of its hands to devour human flesh. Though the idea may frighten tourists in the land of giant spiders and poisonous snakes, locals are much less concerned. While the tale of the outback vampire may have been used as a urban legend rather than proven sightings, the mythical monster has been likened to the Southeast Asian Tarsier uh, primate, although these are not known to exist in the outback. Did you see the picture of it? Yeah, it looks weird. <laughs> I wonder why it has paint, skin paint on it. I know. <laughs> the Yahweh. Yeah, it sees just Bigfoot. Yep, uh, New South Wales, Queen Lynn. <laughs> not, <laughs> no, not the chocolate kind. Uh, the Yahweh first uh, realized an object. Yahweh, not Yahweh. Y Yahweh. Right. Yahweh it, is the God. is the Israelite. <laughs> what how do you pronounce it? Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh was first. <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> You're welcome. First realized in Aborigines oh. Australian mythology, sometimes referred to as a Yahoo, Harry Man, or the Kangaroo Langu, uh, an Australian antique of Bigfoot, or perhaps a long lost cousin. 
Pride, pride cousin of Bigfoot. Yep, the creature has uh, had a legend sighting since the 1700s, which all describe the same sort of beast, a cross between a gorilla and a human. An overly tall, muscular man covered in hair that is in, similar to that of an ape. Similar sightings are alleged around the world from Bigfoot or the Sasquatch in North America to the abominable snowman Yeti in the Himalayas or the Yurin in China. I've never heard of the Yurin. I know, maybe we should look that up. Yeah, it'd probably be the same thing as Bigfoot. <laughs> While there have been sworn sightings, the creature itself even lending its name to confectionery and film, dedicated Yowie uh, hunters um, are still on the search for definitive proof of this urban legend's existence. The Yowie um, even been honored with its own uh, uh, statue in the state of Queensland, despite no specific acknowledgement of the Byron Bigfoot beast. Uh, with dedicated sites and tourists uh, to record Yowie uh, sightings, maybe the hair, legendary hairy man will finally stop hiding. Okay, this next one is literally just a T-Rex. What the hell? <laughs> God, that looks photoshopped. Wow. It is just a straight up T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? Okay, um, this one is called the Burringer. Maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, I don't know. Australian Outback. Burranger? Yeah, Burranger. Burranger? Giant lizard, small dinosaur, or feathered reptile. There have been conflicting descriptions of this giant reptilian indigenous cryptid, but documented sightings from the 1950s to late 80s describe the creature as walking on two legs akin to a T-Rex. Are they sure they just didn't see an oversized kangaroo? You guys really need to stop smoking the... What do they call it down under... I don't know. You're the one that's name is down under 3232. <laughs> what? Yeah. Local legend dis depicts Beringer, nicknamed by the Aboriginal people as Old Three Toes, God, as a nocturnal reptile that feasts on native animals like cattle and kangaroo, leaving monstrous foot footpaths and missing livestock in its wake. More recent investigations have led to the belief that the lower outback between South Australia and the Northern Territory is home to a large lizard, the Parenti, which can grow up to three meters in length and devour animals as large as goats. In terms of good old three toes, no sightings have been documented in almost 40 years. Has it gone extinct if it ever existed? Or is it just one of many dinosaurs said to have been found among Australia's fossil footprints? Mm -hmm. Okay, what, this next one is just a koala. freaking koala. <laughs> Said only to attack foreigners, the Australian drop bear is a well-known mythical creature. <laughs> and that thing looks feral. <laughs> who have uh, seemingly taken a collective responsibility uh, to inform all international visitors of the koala-like predator. The urban legend in, uh, in their own right, drop bears are known to ambush those standing below native Australian trees falling from the branches and matching onto the people onto the necks of those below. Also referred to as the Dyloraptos plumidus, <laughs> the drop bear has appeared in Australian folklore for over 50 years. Common remedies include putting uh, Vegemite behind the ears, wearing for forks in one's hair. Australians uh, should know that the 
that like the hoop snake, the drop bear is a tail and jest. Although the colloquial uh, Aussie hoax may have been based on marsupial lions, uh, the thylacolio, I can't know how to pronounce that, which existed around 4 million years ago, whether it's a joke based on fact or somewhere in the middle, the drop bear is at least one mythical creature all Aussies can most definitely agree exists because it's a koala. <laughs> Uh, is that the last one? Yeah, I'm seeing if this other one has a different one. Well, here's one. Uh, Daira Wong. Uh, first Dreamtime creature to appear in this list, the Daira Wong is, is a uh, Gonan. Oh, that's what we were saying earlier. Um, a creature being that departed knowledge and protecting uh, the Bunjalong nation. Comprised of 15 Aborigines tribes of Bunjalong. Believe that the Daira Wong... No, don't, I don't want your <laughs> I don't want your notifications. Leave me alone. Uh, compromise um, the Darawang shared with uh, them knowledge about medicine, bush foods, uh, astronomy, law, and cultural traditions such as dances, headgear, and body designs and songs. The Darawang uh, is supposedly uh, supposed to resemble a um, me um, megalina prasia, a seventy uh, or seven to ten meter long uh, gona that went extinct around 40,000 years ago. In addition to teaching the Bunjulong how to live and survive, the Dairawong is eternally engaged in battle with the creator being known as the Rainbow Snake. The Dairawong once uh, engaged in an epic battle with the Rainbow Snake where it had misbehaved. Resulting struggle resulted in the creation of parts of the Richmond River, Snake Island, and Pelican Islands. Um, at the end of the struggle, the Rainbow Snake made it to the ocean and became an island, supposedly New Zealand. Where the Darawang caught up with the rainbow snake, he laid down facing the sea to guard against its return. The Darawang headland at Evans Head, New South Wales, is believed to be the Darawang's physical body. The Darawang is also believed to be associated with rain. Uh, in Gonan Headland, there is a rain cave where the er elder elders of the Bujalong nation used to go conducting ceremonies for rain. The Darawang continues to this day to be an important influence to the Bujalong people. In 1985, uh, 16 hectare hecta acres of the Garalong headlands became the first Aborigines land grant in New South Wales. The legend and history of Darawang is a fascinating one and can be further explored. Can, can you look up Rainbow Serpent? Like, see if there's any myths? Yeah. All well, you're talking about. So, um, here's one that uh, wasn't on that list. It's called the Mulge. Jawank, M U L D J E W A N G K. Oh, yeah. That looks weird. Yeah. Deep in the Murray River of South Australia looks a terrible race of creatures known as the Moljawank. Uh, details on the creatures vary. Some say they are a race of merfolk, which is really cool. Yeah. Others say that it is a single giant monster, but one thing is constant you don't want to mess with them. Supposedly hiding under clumps of floating seaweed, they destroy fishing nets and disturb those who are foolish enough to enter their territory. Though some local elders claim that they no longer exist, they still thrive in stories told to naughty children to keep them from playing by the river after dark. Mm. Like, if you ever listen to myths about, like, mermaids and whatnot, like, they're not, they're very inconsistent, you know, like... Depends on what... Region to region. Like, uh, okay, like in Japan, you know, the, uh, what is the, the Kappa. Mm -hmm. Like it, supposedly 
they try to, they have like this saucer of water on their, on the top of their head. And like, if you, like, if you, like, they try to drown you underwater and crap. But they look like a turtle person or whatever. But, like, if you... So, there's, like, these myths of... Or sorry. Like, if as long as they keep the water on the saucer in their head, on top of their head, they're, like, strong and whatnot. So, there's all these myths of where, like, you know, like, a lo- like the Japanese guy going down the road, like, bows to the kappa. And the kappa bows right back into <laughs> all the water flows out of its head and then the guy like like freaking tackles it or whatever you know like because they they like wrestling or whatever mm-hmm. but i, I don't know. so were you able to find something about the rainbow serpent yeah it's a this power- i i now that it we brought it up it's a very i think it's one of the main gods it is yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a powerful, immortal, and creative being. The Rainbow Serpent is associated with rain, water, fertility, food, and the prosperity of a community. The earliest representation of the Rainbow Serpent was found in rock art and related religious beliefs at least 6,000 years ago. Right. Oh. Why? Oh, why? Why is the National Museum of Scotland have an article about... Wait, Scotland? Yeah, it has an article about Australian yeah. Rainbow Serpent. That makes sense. Um, Yeah, it's a society, it represents one of the uh, greatest and most powerful forces of nature and spirit, connects water, the rainbow serpent uh, is a great life giver and protector of water, which is his spiritual home. Yeah, it's a symbol of strength, creativity, and continuity. Okay, Um, here's another one, it's called the Tidalik. T-I-D-D-A-L-I-K. That's a big boy. Is a character in Aborigine Dreamtime mythology. While not a creator being, um, it still plays an important role. Although tales of it are widespread, they actually are all derived from the Aborigine people of South Gippsland, Victoria. It is a giant water-holding frog that once drank all the world's fresh water. When everything began to die of thirst, the other creatures devised a plan to make it laugh. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm going to get demonetized. For what? (laughs) Thereby releasing all the water in its mouth. Many creatures tried to make him laugh, but all failed until Nabanoom. The eel danced and twisted himself into knots before him. Laughing, it released the water, refilling the world's lakes, swamps, and rivers. All this restored water to the world. It also had the adverse effect of causing a massive environmental disaster. The ensuing flood resulted in many creatures drowning and from being stranded on different islands. In modern times, the story has been cleaned up so as to give it a happy ending. It has gone on to transcend its aboriginal roots to becoming a popular character in children's books. Oh. And then here's another one, the Wally... Waggle. Waggle. I'll well, waggle you, don't you? It's probably not Waggle. It's W-A-G-Y-L. Waggle. Um, the last three times... 
Whoa, what happened there? <laughs> the last Dreamtime creature to appear on this list is a Waggle, a snake-like creator being. Don't confuse it with the Rainbow Serpent, for they're two different, very different creatures. While the Rainbow Serpent <laughs> created the universe and humans, the Waggle was assigned to creating and protecting rivers, lakes, springs, and wildlife. Much like the Direwong, the Waggle is believed to have a physical body here on Earth. The Waggle's body is made up of the, the uh, Darling Scarps, a low escarpment to the east of the Swan Coastal Plains in Perth, Australia. It is said to, that as the waggle uh, slithered over land, he carved the paths of the rivers. Whenever he stopped to rest, his body created bays and lakes. He scraped off scales, becoming forest and woodlands, while his droppings became piles of rocks. Uh, strongly associated with rivers, the waggle is uh, said to be personally responsible for the creation of swan and caning rivers and other waterways around Perth and southwest Australia, southwestern Australia. Uh, Nagar people believe that they were assigned by the Waggle as guardians of the land. What the? I mean, it, when I'm looking up pictures of it, it looks like it's just kind of, kind of looks like the rainbow serpent, you know? Yeah. Um. Did we already talk about the Yuramai Yahoo? I think so, right? That's the weird stuff. Yeah, the red one. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we covered, cause, yeah. I think we got most of them. Yeah. Yeah, but... I wish we, maybe we'll do that another time, but the rainbow serpent, because surely there's some myths about that, so, yeah. Okay, um, you got anything else? Okay, thank you for listening, guys. Uh, I hope you have a good uh, week. Um, at least where we're at, it's going to be raining all stupid week, so. I know. That's, that's <laughs> have, great. Have fun with that at work. But, yeah. Whatever. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening. Peace. Bye.